Welcome back to day two of the Global Supply Chain Week here at Freightways. I'm the editor-at-large at Freightways, John Kingston. You know, when vaccines were first introduced, you might remember those films, those videos of the first trucks pulling out of the manufacturing center or distribution center. I can't remember what it was, but it was a really exciting time to see those trucks hit the road and know that those that was really the start of the end of the pandemic. Christina Holch is an attorney with the Benish Law Firm, and pharmaceuticals are her area of practice with a particular focus on generic drugs. Her work is international in scope, uh, though she is based in Columbus, Ohio, which is the headquarters for Benish, and Benish also has a large, well-respected transportation practice. So, Christina, welcome to the Global Supply Chain Week. Thanks for having me. Appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. So, what is the state of the pharmaceutical supply chain now, and how bad did it get during the worst of the pandemic? And I realize there are multiple pharmaceutical supply chains. You're kind of a specialist in generics. There's also, I don't know what the opposite of generics is, you know, company-owned uh, owned drugs, uh, over-the-counter drugs. Branded, yeah. how, how, what, what's the state of that supply chain? It, it really depends on who you ask in in the supply chain, right? It's um, There are some of the participants that probably made out pretty well during the pandemic. There are certainly... Unfortunately, my clients, who I would say got hit the hardest, the generic manufacturers have had a really hard time. And there are a number of, of reasons uh, for why it hit them harder than probably anybody else in, in that, that really long chain of getting the, the drug from the manufacturer into the hands of the, the end user, the customer. All right, wait, and what are some I, of those? I'm happy to go into some Yeah, please, of, please. Why, why did they suffer as opposed to, as I mentioned early on, I know there's multiple supply chains. Just call, just talking about the pharmaceutical supply chain is probably too broad a description. So why did the generics particularly get hit? So if you look at the um, kind of the gene, uh, the chain overall, very simplified, you have the, the customer being the, the pharmacy, let's say pharmacy, you have the starting point, the manufacturer, and in there, in the middle, sort of, you have multiple layers of um, distribution, um, wholesaler uh, chain. And the key issue that that we have really come across is that the, the wholesale chain is, um, the wholesalers, essentially, there are three big players that uh take up over 90% of the market. So with that limited uh, level of competition, it was never, even before the pandemic, an easy time for uh, generic manufacturers because you have to go with one of the big three, right? If you want to get your your product into uh, the hand of a larger group of of customers. Um, The biggest issue uh, even before the pandemic was that um, there's a certain payment cycle on the manufacturer wholesaler side and there's a different payment cycle on the wholesaler customer side. And if the it's, it's really easy math. If the wholesaler has better payment terms, has more time to pay the manufacturer, then it has on the, the other end with the customer, then the wholesaler never has to come out of pocket and holds all of the economic power. 
that makes it very easy for them to dictate the terms and makes the generic uh, market a really low margin market. So there is not a lot of wiggle room and uh, a lot of financial pressure on, on the manufacturers. If then a pandemic hits and you are dealing with the actual delays in, in deliveries, you have uh, late fees in your contract, you have uh, shipping costs that multiply by 10 to 50, then suddenly a low margin business is really squeezed to the point of where it's, it is getting hard to survive. You know, you would think with the, I mean, it's, this is a very simplistic thought with only three manufacturers or three dis distributors who were really squeezing the customers that there might be room for a fourth. But I would imagine that the barriers to entry in that business are really high. And that's why it stays a, a three, I won't call it a three company monopoly, but you know, a three company high degree of concentration. Yeah, it, 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 it really, it really does. And, and the, the problem as we see it, I mean, we can only really talk from, from our perspective is that the, those, uh, three big players also hold the, uh, branded market. So you can't, as a generic manufacturer, you would think it would be easy to cut out and go directly to the, to the customer and offer that, just cut out the middleman, right? But since the customer is also buying a range of other products where they get nice discounts from the wholesaler, they are really um, wholesaler loyal and are not willing to cut those direct uh, deals with the manufacturers. And and you're just stuck in, in that chain and can't bypass it in in a scalable way where uh, it would allow you to, to really change the overall model. Now, what did the pandemic do to make this situation even more aggravating for the generic producers? Uh, did they get hurt even more and why? Okay, so the, the, there were really, I mean, obviously when the pandemic first hit and uh, China shut down, I think, uh, that I remember, uh, I forget the name of the province that, that kind of shut down first. That was literally where uh, a lot of my clients had most of their manufacturing facilities. So that, that's, that's a pretty, pretty easy uh, hit to, to the manufacturer and, and a, a huge strain on, on the supply chain, even if you work with probably three to five months of uh, safety stock as most gen uh, generic manufacturers do. But I mean, initially we thought, oh, a couple of weeks we get through this and then it turned into three, six months and not a whole lot was happening coming out of, of China. So that, that was, that was the, the first big problem. And then, and all the dominoes started falling after that, then even if you could get the drugs, you couldn't really ship it across the ocean anymore. You couldn't find workers to, to do this or that. You couldn't uh, find trucks to load anything onto. And, and suddenly shipping costs really, I, I think we went from a couple of thousand to into the 10, 20, 30, 50,000 for, for the 
the same load of drugs that you would uh, get into the country before the pandemic. So that that's that's just difficult to overcome and resulted in obviously a lot of debt building up for, for those manufacturers in a business that is already struggling with cash flow. So it, it's a, just a really tough situation. And one thing that at the beginning of the pandemic I read, and I remember just dropping my jaw, I hadn't known it, is that China controls more than 90% of the world's supply of antibiotics. I, I had no idea that that was the case. And given all the problems you've just laid out here, that always raises the specter of reshoring or nearshoring, where production comes back to the U.S. I don't know when the last time it was really even here, uh, or it goes to nearby countries, Canada and Mexico being the two most obvious. Is there any kind of a trend there, or is the Chinese advantage really, really high? And, and why is that advantage? It, that, that's a good. It's a good question. Um... And, and I think everybody is looking into ways of, um, diversifying. And, and we have certainly seen within the pandemic, um, efforts to, um, move production into the U.S. We've had several products, um, go into the U.S., but it's just not a quick process, right? And I'm, I, I know Europe and Germany in particular, they, they just went through this with, um, with a children's cough syrup where they've had an incredible shortage on that one particular product. And it was over 90% coming out, out of China. And if you want, it's not like you can't build up a facility overnight. It's going through a, a long approval process. You, you're looking at, two years at a minimum uh, if you're starting to relocate. So it's uh, certainly an effort, but it, it's not going to be a quick fix. And what we have found, particularly in the U.S., when we have tried to go with uh, local CMOs, is that they often have quality issues. We, we really have been getting better, more reliable quality out of uh, China and India, as opposed to what we've seen from some of the, the U.S. manufacturers. What is the Chinese advantage? You know, when, when China first became a manufacturing power, however many years ago you want to date that, a lot of it was because they had this giant pool of cheap labor, and that would be their advantage. I don't know enough about drug making to know whether labor costs or that's significant an advantage. So why are they, how do they r rise to this power of 90% plus uh, market share? It, I, I think it, it was really self-perpetuating. They had the initial advantage. There wasn't really a pressure on anybody else to, to do it. And um, once you stay in that pattern and with that, that long lag of, of time, and I mean, you're looking at, at generics, even um, even generic. I mean, branded drugs take even longer to take from development to actual um, market launch. It, you, we are still looking at seven years, and you're not switching. Once you're in that process, uh, you're not switching unless you absolutely have to. And you, if you have, um, uh, especially in the generic market, reliable um API suppliers, you have reliable packaging, you have all the pieces there, then once they're there, it 
it just grows on on its own. I th- I think that's really how how that happened. The know how got settled in one spot when there was no real incentive to to go anywhere else where it would have been significantly more expensive. And then once you're there, you're there. Now, what is the law on this? I I, I remember you know hearing a throwaway line several times over the years, you can't import drugs into the U.S. And obviously, you're talking about a supply chain that involves uh, heavy manufacturing in China exporting to the U.S. So that's too simplistic. What is the legal restraint, if any, on bringing drugs into the U.S. from another country? There, there, isn't, there isn't much of, of, um, of a restraint there. You just have to, to follow all the, the testing and import export uh, requirements, which I'm not at all an expert in. I'm just making sure that that our, our guys have solid contracts for manufacturing. But there, there's really, you just got to follow the process and make sure that product is being properly tested, both uh, when it leaves the uh, country of origin and comes to the U.S., is stored accurately uh, with the, all the, the temperature requirements and what else uh, there might be. But beyond that, there, there's really not, not a lot. All right. So we talked about all the problems. <laughs> Let's talk about the success stories. I would think it's a success story. The ability of this supply chain to get the, uh, the vaccines into the system and into people really rather quickly. Uh, that, that first truck that I mentioned went out right after early December, I believe, in 2020. And uh, I know that by April, uh, there was really kind of more supply than was necessary. So uh, you, you really had the supply chain do a great job in getting even excess supplies into the market. Would you agree that, you know, standing back as a pharmaceutical expert, that that was really quite an accomplishment? Uh, oh, it was absolutely fantastic. And it, it helps to, to have that sophisticated distribution system. And that's where clearly having three big players that cover everything, the entire country, certainly was a great advantage instead of having to coordinate with the 50 or 100 smaller ones. But uh, overall, yes, by by all means, it, it was incredible how quickly um, the vaccine got into everybody's hands. And I mean, at the time, it couldn't happen quickly enough. I still remember lining up and waiting for, for my first dose, but then it just seemed to be happening overnight. And that was that was wonderful to see. Okay. One, one question in the supply chain that I've always been a little curious about is pharmaceutical benefit managers. What do they do? Uh, it again depends on who you ask, and uh, I'm that's um, the part of the supply chain that that I'm not not dealing with. Uh, they are mostly working with the with the smaller pharmacies and making sure that that uh, they get the the drugs into the hands of the the smaller pharmacies, and uh, they are the conduit to all of the um, insurance plans. So that piece, I it's an incredibly difficult, convoluted, I want to say mess. I'm sure somebody uh, disagrees with this and said it, it's it's a very sophisticated system, but I, I think it's overly complicated and um, certainly not something that the man on the street easily comprehends. And I certainly don't comprehend it. I know that I, the Pricing that goes into all of those drugs can be 
somewhat surprising. I know that I have a, um, I have a prescription drug that, um, when my insurance covers it, I pay nothing, zero dollars. If my insurance were not to cover it and I would have to get the generic, I would have to pay $150 in copay. So that's those things we, you wonder, right? <laughs> I mean, there, there's certainly room for, for improvement and, and more clarity and hopefully more simplicity there. I want to wrap up because we're running out of time here. Going back to something you made reference to, and you talked about inventories and the amount of inventories that companies like to hold. Do you think that what everybody went through with that you discussed before with the generic drugs, that it has changed the attitude toward inventories and you're going to see companies hold more supply in inventory? Um, probably so. I think, um, and I have seen that along uh, across the whole spectrum from the, the API supplier, from packaging, everybody is required to hold more safety stock. But uh, for, for the drugs themselves and the API, you have to keep in mind that they usually only have a shelf life of two years. So the, the amount of um, safety stock you can hold is somewhat limited and because the customer won't buy it if it doesn't have that shelf life left. So you, your hands are, are tied there to a certain extent. You can't stock, obviously, three, four or five years of product. That's all the time we have. We want to thank Christina Holsch, an attorney with the Benish Law Firm of Columbus. Her specialty is pharmaceuticals, and she's been talking here about the pharmaceutical supply chain in the wake of the pandemic. I'm John Kingston. I've been doing the interview. Please stay with us for more of the Global Supply Chain Week.